Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 31, Act 1. Courtney J. Body, 1 in 8. Recorded June 11, 2020 in Brooklyn, New York. So damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the pairs they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for old people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Welcome to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is a podcast that celebrates artists and advocates for community engagement. This podcast has partnered with Creative Generation, launching this video series called Keep Making Art back in April. And it features creatives who are making and sharing art and or guiding or advocating for others to make and share art. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We're also an actual podcast, so you can also follow us on SoundCloud, subscribe there. You can um, find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. And thanks for listening. So normally in my intro, I tend to say, welcome to Teaching Our Issues According to Jay Body. That's me. Um, this is kind of a different uh, episode. I'm actually reading off of a teleprompter. Um, but I thought I'd talk more specifically about who I am. So I am Courtney J. Body. I am a cisgendered black woman. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a cousin, a friend, an auntie of many. I'm an actor, a theater maker, a teaching artist, arts administrator, a professor, and a podcast host, and so much more. This has been a um, challenging few weeks. Um, At the end of, or in the middle of what has already been a very challenging few months. this week, this past week has has been one of the hardest I think I've experienced in this pandemic. Um, and I was sick. I, I don't I still don't know if I actually had COVID, but I was definitely sick at the very beginning of this. Um, I'm already autoimmune deficient in certain ways, and so I've had to be extra careful. And I feel quite lucky that if I did have COVID, that um, the fact that I've recovered in ways that other people you know, just couldn't, um, I feel blessed in that way. 
but yeah, this last week has been some of the hardest moments and the most I've worked um, since working from home, some staying home, since I'm sheltering in place. And um, I have said this before, I've shared with this many times, like I talk about my parents a lot. I recently lost my mother, which was devastating. Um, I, I don't know if I've said this before, but my parents actually died on the same exact day, December 12th, just 11 years apart, um, which is what? That's crazy. Um, but also poetic in certain ways. And when she passed away, she had a smile on her face. Um, that says to me that she was free of pain, which she was in a lot of. But also I'm hoping that there was somebody there waiting for her. And I hope it was my father or whomever it was that they were there to embrace her with light and love and joy and kindness and um, just no pain, free freedom, freedom. So yeah, I have been thinking a lot about my parents. Um, Monday after uh, June 1st, Monday, um, many things happened that day and I had worked very, very late. And um, in between, in between, I took a break. So at the end of the sort of normal work day, I had taken a break. I had said my last goodbye, clicked leave meeting from a Zoom and started to bawl and just broke down crying. And what was going through my brain was my dad. And I and and more specifically, like a specific moment in his life that he would tell us time and time again. And I think as a kid, I just wasn't getting it. And the way he would recount it, often it was because something happened as opposed to just wanting to share something in the world had happened, right? So my father grew up in the South. My parents met in Chicago. Um, my grandfather, my mother's father, um, grew up in Alabama, as did my father. So I think that's interesting. But he was a part of, sorry, my grandfather's, my mother's mother um, was a part of the Great Migration and, and eventually found himself in Chicago where he met my grandmother, who I think they came from um, Kentucky. And uh, uh, together they had seven children, my mother being the third from the youngest. And my mom grew up in the south side of Chicago um, as a kid for many, or pretty much throughout most of her life, lived in housing, um, you know, affordable housing uh, buildings. And my father grew up in, in the rural south or Phoenix, uh, Alabama, Phoenix City, Alabama. Um, and um, in this little tiny little pocket of a, of a town. Um, I, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, actually grew up or, or lived in like a sharecropper's home house. So these are my parents. These are people who have cared and loved me fiercely, who have found a way through education to move from one po uh, uh, economic level to another and 
who through education also were able to help me and my sister understand the value of that and what that can, what that education can equal often is power. Um, so my dad used to tell us a story that always felt like a story. And now as a, as a person who I, I I'm, I'm 45 and I would, I can see my dad telling me this story when he was 45 or 35 or whatever age as an adult. Um, about how he integrated his college campus. So I want to read to you a couple of things. First, I want to show you pictures of my... So this is me and my dad. Um, this is one of my favorite pictures of me and my dad. Um, let me see if I can get that right. He he, uh, he and I were at my friend's wedding. Um, I was a, the maid of honor, and they were about to leave, and I wanted to make sure we got pictures. And this, of all the pictures that we took, we took a lot. My, both my parents were there. Um, this one is my favorite because... I believe this was taken in 2005 um, because he and I had come to sort come to the other side of our relationship from, you know, a protective father being a daddy's girl to being colleagues and friends. At that point I was, uh, I'd been working at the new victory theater for two years and he was so happy when I (laughs) went into education um, as he was uh, a math teacher for, over 35 years that we used to talk about that. Like we used to have lots and lots of conversations about states of the world. And, you know, he always had big, big, big questions about everything. And sometimes it was exhaustive and other times I was into it. But by this point, he and I had gotten to a place where it felt collegial. It felt really collegial and, you know, all of the same things. I loved him fiercely he was very protective in in a lot of a lot of ways, and he was also very vulnerable in a lot of ways, and still held back. He held back. So, the reason why I'm bringing both of these things up is because um, I can find myself being exactly the same. Like I am very strong. I am. I. I. I also feel fiercely and deeply and big. And I have to sort of put that in pockets or compartments so that it doesn't overwhelm me or others. Um, uh, And sometimes when I'm telling my own stories and I tell them often, um, I have a certain lens on them and I'm trying to examine that. The, The thing that I'm really trying to examine is how well I can navigate spaces specifically spaces that are designed and centered around whiteness. I'm trying to examine that for myself. And this is where I continue to come back to my dad. So let me read you this. uh, I'm going to read between this article and a speech that he wrote. So the article was written in 2007 and he was very proud of it. And it was um, an article in the Jesuit review Um, The college that he went to was a Jesuit college. So this article specifically is talking about um, how he, uh, uh, sorry, how the college campus uh, viewed segregation and ultimately integrated and what that looked like. Um, But first I want to, I want to read from um, a speech that my dad uh, gave when he received the Goudreau award 
Um, this was taken, uh, sorry, he was offered, or he was the recipient of this in 2001. So at that time, just to, to mark time, I was in Atlanta and I was just about to, actually, I was just about to move back home uh, to New York. So uh, to go to grad school, actually. Uh, okay. So here he, in it, he like thanks a bunch of people and then he talks about three specific people. Um, so I'm going to, basically what I'm going to do is, so, you know, I'm going to read a portion of his speech, then we're going to go to the article and then I'm going to come back to the rest of this paragraph. So, uh, he talks about this, uh, particular person who had a great deal of influence on him is my dad. His name is Friar Dibble. He taught me in three of my four high school years. Like me, he was a bit on the poorly side. He referred to himself as round in the middle Dibble. It was he who, by power of example and mutually respectful dialogue, led me to embark upon a journey of seeking truth. He baptized me when I was 16 and by doing so introduced me to deeper obligations and a plethora of spiritual resources. He was incredibly brilliant and an excellent teacher of math and theology who took a special interest in me. That was more than enough to convince me that math should be my college major. On the strength of my academic standing, he helped me to secure a full four-year scholarship to a Jesuit college in, of all places, Mobile, Alabama. There, I was one of eight African-American students on an idyllic campus from 63 to 67. So going back to last Monday, I kept saying one of eight. One of eight? How many times have I said that? I'm one of whatever the number is. And usually it's not anywhere close to double digits when I'm in any particular space. I want to show you some pictures. So here's my dad. I think he's a freshman, maybe a sophomore here. He's an altar boy. Okay. That's a big cathedral, right? He, here's another picture of him with some people that I, I don't know what this is about. Some maybe, maybe a club, maybe, I don't know, but there's a fire there. Are you, are you noticing anything? Um, here's another, look how cute he is. <laughs> He's so little. It's so funny. He was always such a big guy to me, but look at him as a kid. I mean, there I think he's like maybe senior, junior, senior. And then this is another one where you can, you can, it's hard to see him and he's back here. There he is. So he's singing. He's so little and cute. Um, yeah, one of eight. So here this person is, this little guy in the South, like in the deep, deep South even deeper than where, where he came from, grew up, and he has to navigate all of these spaces. But he couldn't live on campus, so he had to live off campus and then commute over. Uh, I'm sure he lived within a walking distance, but still, he couldn't have access to the entire campus life. Why? Why? So this is where I'm going to go to the um, article. Let me just find it. <sighs> okay, here we go. 
So the, uh, did I say this already? That the article was called A Professor, A President, and the Clan. So it talks, I'm just going to skip to some parts that I, I want to talk about. So in the years to come, students' sensibilities about integration would outstrip those of the school's senior administrators. When in 1963, an African-American student, Kurt Body, petitioned to live in the residence hall halls, the president at the time, A. William Crandall, told him bluntly, we gave you a four-year tuition scholarship and we thought you'd be grateful. Hmm. Crandall and his consultants had since 1960 privately debated integrating residence halls, but they always rejected the idea for the, for fear of public reaction. So here my dad, pause <laughs> so here my dad is taking action right so he but it's for something personal but there's something larger at play here of course so uh uh let me read the rest of this uh the article so only the patient persistent requests of body and his white classmates pressured the school to eventually make change a year later neither local or nor national press covered the event. And going back to my dad's speech, so I left off with, um, there I was one of eight African-American students on an idyllic campus from 63 to 67. I read about white citizen council meetings, which was a formed council to make sure that they held the power saw a few Klan demonstrations, which in that article talks about how the Klan would actually try and demonstrate on campus and the students worked to thwart that as much as they could without a whole lot of support from the senior, ma uh, the administrative management. Um, he goes on to say, my dad goes on to say, was on the receiving end of angry taunts, uh, sorry, taunts from angry small minded students and the like. Now, here's what I, you know, he's giving a speech, so obviously he's not going to go in. But here's what I'm remembering is I still didn't feel like I was hearing from the emotional side. Like, how hard was that to continue to be, have to persist, to continue to have to make a case, to have to make or, um, you know, uh, to, to be called the N-word, to be called all sorts of things and to be put in danger in some some cases, I'm sure. But he goes on to say, but it was there that I also formed positive relationships with others of the student population that have outlasted any of the ugliness I encountered. So to me, and according to that article, there were these white students who also petitioned. And um, not only that, but he needed to make sure that if I'm remembering correctly, he said, you know, they, the, the final thing was like, yeah, if you can tell, if you can get somebody who will actually live with you, then we can consider it. And so he had to find somebody who would be his roommate. And he finally did. And and he and that's, I don't remember the person's name, but I remember him talking about how that person had been a friend for a very long time, long after college. And my dad was a very emotional man. And he was also, you know, somebody who would speak up and speak out no matter where he was. And he worked in a college, uh, sorry, he worked in a high school that um, 
had a lot of white privilege, a lot of privilege. Um, and we lived in a town where the, the percentages of people of color and more specifically black people were quite low. And we navigated all those spaces and he taught us. And the way I have been talking about it was from this place of like, I don't understand, but for him and my mom, I'm sure it's always been about survival and thrive and thriving, but you need to survive in order to stay safe. You have to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Why? Because he experienced it directly. Was I getting that as a kid? Was I even getting that a year ago? I don't know. So here I am. Um, I'm going back to my document here. I want to, um, I want to tell you a few of my own stories and things that I have not, um, only recently really been able to look at, really look at, um, My my choices mostly have also been about, um, you know, making change, but doing it like incrementally and stitching it and like sort of pulling over to the side and being like, well, you know, the institution isn't ready, but I can I can control this. And who's going to tell me I can't do this when it comes to our students? Right. And was I pushing it? Was I being radical in context? Maybe. But in reality, no, no. And so I have to stop doing that. And then on a personal level, I, um, I can tell you this story. So, so, so one of the first protests happened about three or four blocks away from my house. I don't feel comfortable going out, uh, in crowds in general, frankly, but more specifically in this time, only for my own safety, my health for health reasons, but I support everything. And I, of course, don't want anybody to feel like they are going to put themselves in harm. But that is the case that people are intentionally doing that and so brave. And I, I thank them. I thank everybody who's gone out into the streets um, for any type of protest. And, and really, I'm hoping that we all believe deeply that black lives matter. I've always believed that but have I always done or acted from that place and beyond that place? I have to examine that for myself. So going back to my personal self, um, one of my, one of my very dear friends from college, uh, her sister was getting married in South Carolina. Um, she invited me. I was very excited to go again, white people. It's fine, whatever. But here's the thing. I was trying to figure out how to get there, you know, financially, and timing wise, and it made more sense on all those fronts um, to fly into uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and then rent a car and go to, um, uh, I forget where it is in South Carolina, Green something. Um, but I hesitated. I hesitated because Sandra Bland had just been murdered in after a traffic stop. How many times have I talked to people who, who are black, who have been pulled over or treated poorly by the police on, on a traffic violation or no traffic violation whatsoever and treated 
poorly. And then this is somebody who, you know, was pulled over on a routine traffic stop and it went in this very negative, horrible space ending with her death and then them trying to fake how she actually died. So this gave me a lot of pause. I'd never, I'd never felt fear like that before. Um, and so I had to talk to my friend and say, I don't know if I can come because I can't figure out how to, you know, drive directly into, or take the flight directly into based on my schedule into South Carolina. The only way to do this, but I don't know if I should rent a car and I was like, let me just think about it. And in the meantime here, my friend said, you know what? I want to make sure you're there, buy your ticket and we will pick you up. So that happened and that, you know, but that, but that fear was real. And I, I had to examine that deeply, um, for my own self and why, and, and understand that that experience of fear is how people, how black people feel on a regular when they just leave out their house. I don't always feel that way, but I have felt fear and I have realized that I have very specific tactics for how to sort of make myself invisible to a police officer. Um, I soften everything when I notice. So here's my next story is the day of the protest. The first one on Saturday, the 30th, I believe I was going for a walk, my weekly walk um, at the track, which is east of here. And on my way back, I was thinking maybe I should go. Also, I need to go to the grocery store. <laughs> this is what I was thinking. And as I was walking back, I noticed that I had not really noticed some two things before. One was I really thought about it. I was like, actually, I shouldn't go. I shouldn't go. I shouldn't go. Right. But what really made it seem what popped for me were two things. There were helicopters overhead. And we know that when helicopters are overhead, nothing good is happening. Somebody is being sought. Often it's a black person. Some they're, they're, they're looking for something, you know, like it just, it gets anxiety up. There were two police officers who normally when I'm walking to the track, I'm always seeing police officers on a certain, there's four blocks. There's certain block where there's always two police officers stationed. I don't know why that particular block, I don't know, but there are a lot of big buildings on that block. They're not on my block. I just don't, I don't get it. Um, but usually they're closer to Nostrand, which is um, two blocks from here, or they're standing in front of a particular, a very specifically a particular um, a building where often some, you know, people who live in that building, I'm assuming, hang out out front and there are there's often conversation and it can feel tense and I sort of like just keep keep it moving keep it moving so th- what I noticed was those helicopters overhead that there were two cops actually not across they were directly across the street on the same side of the street that I was walking and for, and the first thing I did was okay I have my mask on I have sunglasses on how do I soften myself I don't even, I don't even know that I do this. I just do this and also no eye contact. But the thing is that I noticed is that these two cops were of color. Neither were black, but they were of color. So I also did another thing that I didn't realize I do, which was to release some of that. Anyway, so I ended up going home and there were helicopters above um, our heads for multiple hours like in a row and at some point I think there were more than one 
helicopter. And so the entire night, even though I was home in my house where I'm supposed to feel safe, I had such anxiety about what was happening outside, why those helicopters were there, all, all those things. Anyway, so these are things that I'm examining for myself. Okay. I'm going to try and wrap this up. <laughs> I want to play, uh, I want to play something and then I'm going to read, uh, a, um, I'm going to read something else. Okay. So this is something I found on the black lives matter. Um, website. My God. Sad day in America. Painful to be introduced to George Floyd during his last breath with a cop's knee on his neck. On his neck. He deserves so much more. So much more. How many black lives have to be taken before something is done? We are not a threat. I am shaking as I type. This has got to stop. We are sick of it. I just want us all to live. Death will not stop until the powers that be are finally held accountable. Don't look away from the truth until every one of us are free from white supremacy. The world. Criminalizing and killing of black and brown bodies is not new. It's as old as America. It's just getting filmed more. Do you know what it feels like to be hunted? To have a new hashtag for a dead black person every single day? How does one plan a life if they aren't sure they will have a life to plan? George Floyd. His name was George Floyd. Say his name. Say his name. George Floyd. Say his name. Say their names. Once again and always, we fight for justice. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Rest of power, beautiful. You didn't deserve this. Okay. So I'm going to read um, an article that I read yesterday in the New York Times. It was a, it's an opinion by Charles M. Blow, who he's a columnist. The article I recommend reading um, is called Allies, Don't Fail Us Again. In this, he starts with talking about 1964 and how that was called the Freedom Summer and that eventually um, the Civil Rights Act was signed that same year. And how then the real work needed to begin and so I'm just going to scroll down and start sort of midway through um, he starts with the king who was in Chicago um, working on fair housing and there was a, a protest that had some counter demonstrators that were white and actually also included some um, legislators who signed the act the Civil Rights Act. Okay. So I'm going to start here. King would say after the riot, quote, I have seen many demonstrations in the South, but I have never seen anything so hostile 
and so hateful as I have seen here today. I'm convinced that many of the very people who supported us in the struggle in the South are not willing to go all the way. Now, I came to see, I came to see this in a very difficult and painful way. In Chicago, the last year where I have lived and worked, some people who came quickly to march with us in Selma and Birmingham were, act, were not active around Chicago. And I came to see that so many people who supported morally and even financially what we were doing in Burma, Birmingham and Selma were really outraged against the extremist behavior of Bull Connor and Jim Clark toward Negroes, rather than believing in genuine equality for Negroes, end quote. Charles Blow continues, many of the white liberals who supported the movement had been moved by embarrassment, moved by images of cruelty rather than the idea of genuine and equitable inclusion. White allies had disappointed once again. One of the most hopeful and heartening features of the current protests has been the images of people of all races in this country and around the world openly supporting anti-racism, carrying Black Lives Matter posters, and using more sophisticated language in discussing the matter of state violence against Black people. The challenge here is to sustain the, sent the current sentiment and not let this version of Freedom Summer be yet another moment when allies fail. We must make sure, make a statement that this is a true change in the American ideology and not an activist chic summer street festival for people who have been cooped up for months, not able to go to school or graduate, not able to go to concerts or bars. This is not the social justice Coachella. This is not systemic racism Woodstock. This has to be a forever commitment even after protest eventually subsides. Once again, many white allies, to some degree, have been moved by embarrassment at transience and by the image of public cruelty in much the same way that it, as it happened in, 19, in the 1960s. This feels bigger. This is bigger. But we must resist efforts to simply pacify and quell to simply stop the awful images. We must strike at the root that the entire system operates in a way that is anti-black, that it disadvantages and even punishes blackness, that part of your privilege is built on my oppression. We will have to come to see and accept that this system of oppression has been actively, energetically designed and deployed over centuries. And it takes centuries of equally active and energetic efforts to dismantle it. We must make ourselves comfortable with the notion that for the privileged, equality will feel like oppression. And that things, legacy power, wealth accumulation, cultural influence will not be advantaged by whiteness. I'm going to skip a paragraph and go to the next one. How will our white allies respond when this summer has passed? How will they respond when civil rights gets personal and it's about them 
and not just punishing white men who pressed their knees against, sorry, and not just punishing the white man who pressed his knee on George Floyd's neck. How will they respond when true equality threatens their privilege when it actually starts costing them something? So early, early on, I, I think that same weekend, I put a quote up from Charles Blow, but it was something he put on his Twitter. Um, it was an African proverb that I'm, I'm not going to say it correctly, but the the paraphrase is that a uh, a kid who has no um, a, 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 a kid who doesn't is not embraced by the village will set it on on fire to feel its warmth, so, so something like that. And then uh, I watched a video today. Charles Blow is apparently my, my muse today, but um, he he had a video that he, he shared last weekend, I believe, um, that I watched today. And he, at, towards the end, talks about how he was saying to his family, his, his children, build something, grow something, create. So for me, in all the different roles I have, but more specifically for this podcast, I'm pledging that it will be more radical. It will still be examining arts and arts education, but in the larger context of how we need to change that um, being a voice here means I'm working towards decentering whiteness and working to affect real and radical change. No justice, no peace. As for me and my myriad roles, um, I will work to use my voice for more than incremental change or simply navigating those systems that I'm very good at navigating, but for me to actually speak out, to show up and show out. And I won't always get it right, but I promise to keep listening, to keep trying and to keep growing. And so with that, I say thank you for watching Teaching Artistry with Corny J. Body. And remember to keep making art and Black Lives Matter. Thank you for listening to episode 31, act one, Courtney J. Body, one in eight. Be sure to visit the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body YouTube channel to watch the video of this episode. Join us next time for act two, featuring a conversation with Rachel Watts. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to our brand new pod shop at the top of the page. For merch, Twitter us at TA underscore artistry, the gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And of course, now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and enjoy the hashtag keep making art video series. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life.